So let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this uh, Bible study. We thank you for your word and for this story of David and how um, helpful it is to us as we look at his life and his responses to you and the way you intervened for him in various circumstances. I thank you, Lord, for the way you've used this in Jan's life. And as she's studied it, um, how you've blessed this to her heart. And I pray, Father, that she might be able to clearly, by the Holy Spirit, express those thoughts to us so well today that we might get a grasp on that as well, that we might be encouraged in our faith and encouraged to seek you as David did. Father, we just um, ask your blessing on all those downstairs as well, that you would be with them. Father, we pray that um, by your spirit, we would be impacted by your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, One more thing. If you have a cell phone, don't forget to turn it off. Um, Yeah. There we go. Wonderful to be with you this morning. It seems like, well, it has been like years since I've seen some of you. So, so it's great to be with you and um, see your beautiful faces and your smiles and your eyes. I want us to take a moment first to just think back of David and his life so far. You know, a young shepherd boy defending simple sheep and singing. I think you need to move your mic closer. Closer It's on the other side. Yeah. Or shift it here so that we can. Where do we need here? Put it, put it here. Yeah. Or, oh, you're sitting on her shirt. How's that? Is that better? Bingo. Okay, back up. Think of David and his life so far. He was a young shepherd boy when we first met him, defending these simple sheep and singing to God on the hillsides. Then he defeats a giant, becomes a favored musician to the king, a talented warrior, a victorious commander of the armies, the king's son-in-law, lives in the best neighborhood. He's loved and praised by all the people. Think of that leap he has made and where he is then. Suddenly, he's stunned. The king hates him. He wants him dead. His life of privilege is gone. And why? He doesn't know. He asked Jonathan to find out. Jonathan didn't tell him. He's crushed. Stripped of family and position and admiration, completely dependent on God. It's a time of anguish. But those times can also be times of grace. When he cries out to the Lord and Yahweh hears. Like David, 
in the confusion and the blast of culture, the plateaus and the valleys of cancer, the searing loss of loved ones, when our earthly supports are shattered, we plead for God's mercy and the reality of his faithfulness becomes our refuge. In a retreat, a gospel renewal retreat last weekend, Mark Davis told a little story I'd like to share with you this morning. His family had a small aquarium full of pet fish. They're just happily swimming around. But sometimes the family would wake up in the morning, walk in the kitchen, and find, sadly enough, a fish on the kitchen counter. That poor little guy, he had gotten this idea that there must just be a better home with a glitzier fish castle. And he jumped out of the aquarium to find it. All he found was a cold, hard slab of granite and no breathable air. Sad little story, but so like us all. As Moses says of the Lord in Psalm 90, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. God made us for himself. And because of Jesus and his sacrifice on our behalf, our Heavenly Father pursues us, invites us, welcomes us. And in his tent, we are satisfied. We breathe and feast and fellowship. Outside his tent, we construct our own little fantasy shacks, like little kingdoms, and we fill them with all sorts of stuff we think we need for security and comfort and a little pizzazz. Dust and ashes. Today, we will watch as two men make very different decisions about where to live. First, there are three themes that are woven throughout this passage. The way of dependence is the first one. Second, the way of defiance. And third, God is our dwelling place. And now chapter 22. Off David goes again after escaping from Gath. Course correction needed there, definitely. He heads 12 miles east to a huge cave known as Agilom. It's in the territory of Judah. Alone, in the darkness of the cave, finding water, foraging in the wilderness with God for company. He is completely dependent. David's trust and his faith deepens. He sends for his family in Bethlehem, all his brothers, the entire household of his father, Jesse. And at last, he's not alone. Hmm. 
but it's a huge responsibility, even though it's a comfort. Word begins to spread. David is in the cave of Agilum. And by ones and by tens and by twenties, 400 men come. They're all drawn by this captain that they know or they've heard about. They're folks in debt, discontented, outlaws, like the troops in Saul's army who served under David's command, and the women who danced and sang at his, as, at his victories. The men of Agilum come to know and love his voice his songs, his leadership. Men who come to trust the God that he trusts. Some of these men become the mighty men of David that we read about in Chronicles and in 2 Samuel. Like a good shepherd, David points forward to Jesus, himself shepherd of a band of brothers and sisters. What kind of a band? A band of outlaws, unrighteous rebels, and sinners like us, chosen as his sheep before time began. We know his voice. If you feel unworthy, you are. We all are. We all fall short. Like Mary Magdalene, Peter, and Paul, we join Jesus' flock by believing in him, not in ourselves. Agilum is too close to Saul. Uneasy, seeking a little safer neighborhood, David leaves. And he travels with his group to Moab, east of the Dead Sea, and he asks the king, Please let my father and mother stay with you. They must have been really elderly by this time. And he knows what Saul would do to them as a way to get at David. And so he seeks protection for them. Until I know what the Lord will do for me, he says to the king of Moab. He doesn't know what God will do or when God will do it, but he trusts. He trusts. The king agrees to provide sanctuary just as long as David and his band of men stay in a nearby stronghold. At last, he must have felt safe, far from Saul. And then he receives God's message from the prophet Gad. Not exactly what he hoped. Do not remain in the stronghold. Go into Judah back in the fire. Course correction. David leaves Moab and he goes to the forests of Harioth and Judah, dependent again on the Lord God Almighty. Surrounded now by family and followers, David's faith grows to trust the Lord's mighty protection, not only for himself, but for the flock of sheep under his care. And now we must stop and take a deep breath and look around because we're about to step from a world of struggle 
but also a world of light where God guides and David follows into a nightmare of darkness. The contrast is stark in this chapter. Just remember Psalm 139. Our God goes with us into the darkness for even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. We can only cry and grieve for Saul as the tragedy of his hard heart continues to unfold. Back at court in Saul's hometown of Gibeah, the king is surrounded by servants, guards, advisors, staff from his tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, under a shade tree. And from a distance, it's just a picture of wealth and power and authority. Saul could have been discussing affairs of state, things like the Philistine threat or the countless needs of the kingdom. But his mind can only think of one thing, his obsession with David. Saul gestures to his staff and his guards. Look at all you have because I am king from your tribe. You have fields and vineyards. You command hundreds in my armies. Will the son of Jesse give you the same preferential treatment now that you've conspired with him against me? Saul continues throwing out these assumptions to support his conspiracy theory, blaming and antagonizing his advisors. Strangely, they remain silent. Verse 8, try to count how many times he says me. No one discloses to me when my son gives makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or tells me that my son has stirred up my servant against me. Saul has the power. He has the army and the wealth, yet he's afraid. He doesn't trust those closest to him. He has no evidence of their disloyalty, yet he accuses them of defecting to David. He longs to be admired, but insults his advisors at every turn, isolating himself. A warped idol controls his mind and his pride. Being the king is of ultimate value. He knows God has taken the kingship from him, But he is defiant, and God, in his great mercy, waits, allows Saul time to give it up, to repent, but he refuses. His son Jonathan points the way, but unrepentant, hardened envy leading to hatred opens Saul's heart to a force of deeper evil. Saul is painfully alone. Here is how Rebecca Pippert sees Saul at this moment in her book, A Heart for God. Clearly, the evil spirit in Saul was intent on destroying David. 
but that does not let Saul off the hook. This spirit had gained access to Saul through the king's rebellion and his sin. He had cooperated with the power of evil. Hatred then, whether demonic or human, is evil and destructive. Hate blinds us and causes us to see monsters where humans exist. I have to admit, when I first read this chapter, I was indignant at Saul's unreasonable hatred. Just as it took time for me to see myself in the apostle Peter's fickleness and Jacob's deceit, it took time for me to reach into my past and remember the anger. Yeah, probably hatred. That I felt towards someone in my life who had hurt me deeply. That's different, I said to myself. You know how you have these conversations. (laughs) That's different. I had a right to be angry. My anger was justified, caused by wounds of betrayal that took me many years to resolve. The more deeply I reflected, the more I was humbled to realize how my response to that hurt was in some ways like Saul. It was destructive to my heart. And definitely to my relationship with God. Looking back, I can see that I allowed my anger to grow, my inner thoughts to demonize, my words to turn to gossip, my anger to twist into self-righteousness. And the road to healing was long. We know that hate destroys us. But what can we do about it? Looking back over those years, I marvel at God's goodness. How he led me from the darkness of anger back along a path very similar to what Becky Pippert describes in her book. She says that the first step along the path to healing is to admit. Admit. Take a close look at the poison within. Not to obsess over it, but to identify it, to name it, to recognize that only God can change my heart. Part of this step is to stop gossiping. I recall long venting sessions with my friends, how those times serve to justify and build my anger. Gossiping led me to bitterness, not freedom. Those sessions had to end. The second step is refuse evil. Every time a fiery dart was released in my mind, which was triggered a lot, my free-floating thoughts would just, boom, follow it to the same old bitterness. 
In a letter to Corinth, Paul writes, let every thought be held in captivity to Christ Jesus. Pray for awareness. Bring the bitter thoughts to Jesus. He knows my heart and he grieves alongside me. His heart is for me and it's for you. Next, pray for obedience. Becky writes these words. So when the thoughts popped into my mind, I turned to the Lord and I said, I do not want to hate, but I cannot love. Please give me the strength not to indulge in these thoughts, for they only make me miserable and separated from you. From now on, with your help, I am choosing not to allow them into my heart. Now for me, each one of these steps requires many battles, and each battle leads me closer to the final step. Choose love. Jesus acknowledges that we will have enemies. Yes. People who can be dangerous and are untrustworthy. We can recognize them as enemies, but we are still called to love them. I'm not asked to lie to myself. I'm asked to choose love. What does that look like? Pray for your enemy. Consider the pain of their story. Know that prayer connects us with the very being and essence of God and his love. You may have to beg for God's mercy to take this transforming step. This is not easy stuff. This is hard work. Watch how God softens your heart and praise him. And when you're ready, share how God can change a heart of stone to flesh. And now we return to Saul. As he builds his theory of treachery, a witness comes forward to speak with, to speak about David's recent visit to the town of Nob. You may recall these foreboding words from chapter 21. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Herdsmen? Ding, ding, ding. Another shepherd? More like a wolf in shepherd's clothing. In Psalm 52, David scoffs at Doeg's fruitless schemes in the face of God's steadfast love. Why do you boast of evil, oh mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Chapter 22, verse 9 tells how Doeg feeds Saul's unfounded fears. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Doeg tells Saul that Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for David, a priestly prayer often used to consult the Lord on military actions. Saul immediately, of course, assumes Ahimelech consulted Yahweh for David about 
him. Doeg uses the words provision, the word provisions, as if Ahimelech gave David food for a troop of fighting men and mentions Goliath's sword. Well, whom but Saul would David be preparing to fight? He sows seeds of false assumptions in Saul's receptive heart. Reality ah, now seems as big as Saul's suspicions. In his mind, not only Jonathan and David, but all the priests of Nob are involved in this treachery. This story from his his herdsmen really fires Saul up. Saul sends for Ahimelech and all his father's house about 12 miles away. And when they arrive completely unaware, a sham trial begins. Saul accuses Ahimelech of aiding the son of Jesse in a conspiracy. And Ahimelech gives a capable defense, but Saul has heard enough. His verdict is swift and horrifying. You shall surely die, you and all your father's house. The king's guards refuse to follow his order to kill the priests. Until recently, remember, David was their commander. They know there's no conspiracy, and so there's no reason for the priests to die. And they fear the living God. So Saul orders Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. The Edomite slaughters 85 priests that day. Then in his madness, Saul devotes the entire town of Nob to destruction, killing all men, women, children, and animals. He wages harem, a holy war on the town surrounding God's tabernacle. In a way, he refused to do with the Amalekites. Saul's hatred for one man leads to a massacre of an entire village. Killing the priests and obliterating every living thing in the town fulfills a word of God spoken against the family of Eli 40 or 50 years earlier. Think back to 1 Samuel 2.33. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house The only one of whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. Now, in the carnage at Gibeah and Nob, it has come to pass. Dale Ralph Davis addresses these evil acts of Doeg and Saul. Ghastly brutal, and unjust. Doeg's butchery fulfills the word of God against Eli. But God is not the author of this evil. It is a horrid wickedness for which Saul and Doeg are fully responsible. It is the clear fulfillment of the word Yahweh had spoken. Put it together. And one truth becomes clear. Enemies opposing God only bring to pass God's word. Through the deeds of Saul and Doeg, a new priesthood will be established through Zadok, a righteous priest who serves David's reign 
and whose Zadokite family line continues as priests at the tabernacle and the temple for many centuries. The end of Saul's reign is set firmly in motion and the kingship of David is driven forward. History is brought closer to real redemption in Jesus. With our eyes open, we can mourn evil in others and still rejoice in God's good purposes, remembering this. How this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts 2.23. In the cross, the total goodness of God intersects with the wickedness of men in ways we can't fathom. To further God's rescue plan for us in ways we can't hope to imagine. It is through Abiathar, the only surviving priest, that David will seek the Lord's guidance in the future. This is verse 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, Oh, I knew on that day when Doag the Edomite was there, he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. David takes responsibility for the death of all the priests. In his repentant heart, David knows that that their death is certainly because of Saul's hatred for him and possibly also because of his lies to Ahimelech that day. Once again, David points to Jesus, who takes responsibility for our sins, though Jesus is perfectly blameless. Jesus, the perfect sacrificial lamb for the sake of his sheep. Verse 23, stay with me, David says to Abiathar, do not be afraid. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. David, though vulnerable, promises safety. His dependency on God offers protection to those under his care. There is safety in Jesus for those who trust in him. We are his daughters, his precious flock, and we trust by faith in Jesus, our shepherd, through all our trials, through the hectic uncertainties of raising children, through rumors of war, through failing health and approaching death. Jesus says, Stay with me. Don't be afraid. With me, you will be safe. I will protect you. I'm your shepherd, your king. And when we follow our risen Lord, the wilderness is transformed. Death is not the end. As David declares of God in Psalm 52, you have done it. And on the cross, Jesus echoes. It is finished. Let's end today by reading the final stanza of Psalm 52 together. It's on page 99 of your booklet. May our resting place be the same as David's.
join with me. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. Let's pray. Oh, dear Lord, like David, we praise your name. Jesus, you have surely done it. You have paid the penalty for our sin. Your resurrection is our assurance of life with you. Lord, you are our dwelling place. As your children, we trust you. We trust you to provide breakfast. And we trust you about eternity. Whatever the struggle is in between, whatever happens in the present moment, big or small, help us trust you about that too. Thank you for the example of David. May our hearts be like his dependent, completely captivated by your beauty and your love. In the glorious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.